My name is Dave Capuccio again. This presentation is something uh, I do on an annual basis. Not the same one, we change it. Um, but the focus is all about um, trends we're seeing in the industry. Um, some people call it the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel speech, when you realize that that light is actually a train coming at you. This is about technologies and trends that are going to impact us, uh, sometimes very short term, uh, sometimes quite long term. But we've discovered over the years that uh, talking to a lot of IT shops, uh, they spend so much time you know, keeping the lights on, paying attention to day-to-day -day operations, that they don't have time to really get out there and think what's happening in the business, what's happening in the market, what's happening with our vendors that might, in fact, impact us over the next two or three years. You know, some people liken it to looking at the world through a soda straw. Um, we all do that at times. And, in fact, we found analysts actually do that as well. Surprise, surprise, we're tech geeks, too. We, we tend to drill down in our own vertical space. We've got server analysts and virtualization analysts and storage analysts and anything you can think of. And they tend to look really deep and they like to get scary. And they tend to look this way and see where that technology is going. And they tend not to go like this. You know, we're trying to do that in this presentation. Let's look at how things tie together. I, I call it cascade effects. You know, how does one thing impact something else? And then why should you be worried about it or not? So we're going to talk about those things. Assuming you got the right presentation here. Oh, here we go. Okay, so let's just start out. Did you know? I do these little data points. 90% of texts, this is a scary thought. Let me preface this. How many text messages were sent today? Do you know? A little over 7 billion. More than the population of the planet. But that's not the scary number. That's the scary number. 90% of texts read every three minutes. Within three minutes, every 90% of them. I'm thinking... If I send you a voicemail, when do I expect you to respond to it? Hour, two hours, a day? If you don't get back to me in a half a day, I'm thinking, well, they probably had a meeting, get tacked up, it's in a queue, nobody does voicemail anymore, who knows? I send you an email, I expect within a day I'll get a response. I send you a text, I know what? I know that you felt that thing buzz at your hip. And I know you didn't get back to me because you're mad at me. And I know, I build this whole storyline around, it's kind of bizarre, but it's the culture we're all living in now, and it's the culture of business going forward. It's a scary number, just a data point. 60 billion emails sent daily. I get most of them, I think. Um, 2.9, and some people were saying now up to 3.5 devices per person um, on average, which we use every day. And sometimes for the same thing, sometimes for different things, but for an IT perspective, we have to deliver everything to all these devices based on what our clients need. Not every application, every device, but we need to enable them to do what our clients or end users need to do, regardless of the type of device it is. 3.3 billion Google searches a day. You know, I call this Ask the Oracle. I mean, how many folks, another side here, how many folks um, in the last, oh, I don't know, week went to dinner outside, you know, some restaurant, and they're at a place never been to before, and realized that we don't know how good this place is, although we found it online. And we found it in Yelp or somewhere else where you know, dozens of people said it was great. Who are those dozens of people? We're basing decisions nowadays not on what we know, but what we think other people know, affecting on the unknown and the unwashed masses. So the culture of society is changing, and societal inputs are changing how we all make decisions. And that starts not only on the outside with our personal lives, but in business as well. 
But the bottom line between all this stuff is this. Any customer you bring online today, any employee you hire, any business partner you talk to, they expect at a minimum access to everything all the time from any device, from anywhere. Five years ago, that would have been an amazingly powerful tool to tell potential partners, this is what we can do. Today, it's an expectation. If you don't do it, you're doing something wrong. So the trends we're going to look at, software-defined, I talked about that a bit this morning, something we call IT service continuity, integrated systems, disaggregated systems, bimodal IT, these are all terms you guys have heard. What we're going to talk today about is how these things interact and how they might impact you going forward. Hyperconnectivity, what I call a micro data center. These are the tiny ones? No. Different view of data centers. Non-stop demand and scarcity of new INO skills. Okay. First one, software-defined. We like to call it software-defined X. Because I've had people come to me and talk about software. I got software-defined organizations last week. Thinking, how's that possible? Oh, it's an HR system. Okay. One vendor had software-defined power. I still haven't quite figured that one out. But software-defined infrastructures, we're looking at things like software-defined networking and software-defined storage. As maybe not dominant trends today, but they're trends that are going to have a definite impact on all of you over the next few years. As I said this morning, a new way to orchestrate, new way to operate, new way to automate, which is the key, IT infrastructures. And long-term, automate IT infrastructures not only in the existing data center, but potentially outwards to partners, to colo, to hosting facilities, maybe even to cloud facilities. So manage my IT assets, my logical IT assets as a physical rather than at the individual node level. Allows configuration from one place, enhances workload, workflow, and traffic flow. So think about moving traffic or changing the dynamics of a network based on time of day, based on login credentials, based on login volume in different parts of the world. I may want to change my traffic patterns to get the most efficient use out of a network. What if I could do that based on business rules rather than physical change, physically changing parts of the network? And it's going to impact network storage, servers, data centers, everything. Now, like cloud, there's been a lot of marketing hype about software-defined. Um, right now, I'd say the ones you need to focus on near term, like last week, software-defined networks. At a minimum, at least start studying them. How can they impact us? How can they change? How can they improve the way we do things? How can they help us automate? Or not. And software-defined storage. But the key to all these things, I think, is that they're going to have some a pretty significant operational and organizational impacts. Because if you can manage the control plane, if you can manage on and off processing and uh, traffic patterns, if you can automate these things a lot based on rules, you're essentially taking responsibility, core responsibilities, away from some of your most highly paid and highly technical people. Now, CFOs out there say, Highly paid, automate, cool, reduce cost. I'm thinking, no, some of my highly paid people are most my highly valuable people. I don't want to run the risk of losing them because of some level of automation. Maybe I can find a way to make them more involved, actually expand their horizons, expand their impact on the overall environment, get them thinking horizontally instead of just in their technology space. And over time, make them a more valuable asset to the organization. And it turns out, by the way, most organizations are finding out just by doing that, a couple of very positive things happened. 
one, those people become more valuable to you, that's obvious. The second, their job becomes more valuable to them because they're learning more. You always find that at the top of the tier of each one of the verticals, you've got some really talented people, and most of them have been doing it for so long, you know, there's not a whole lot of challenge anymore, except the bizarre problems. The challenge for them is learning something new. And if it's tangential to what they already know, that's easy to branch into. If you enable that to happen, if you enable them to learn something new, learn to fail actually in that space and not get really dinged for it, suddenly the value to IT itself grows. Second topic, continuity IT continuity services. I mean, some people look at this and they say it's DR, but um, think about it this way. Last year, two years ago, Storm Sandy hit the East Coast of the US. A lot of the sites that it was heading towards in New Jersey, New York, you know, they've been through 9-11, they've been through a lot. Of, they built solid data centers, tier three, tier four. They were rock solid. And people were thinking, DR, they're not going down. And they didn't. Cool. But what went down was the traffic system. All the roads shut down. And suddenly I've got all these great data centers running and no fuel trucks can get to them. So people are scrambling trying to figure out, that tank runs out in 48 hours, what are we going to do? And there was a realization that DR shouldn't necessarily be about the building. It's about delivering the service continuously. So we began to get a lot of phone calls from CIOs saying, uh, how do we revamp our, our strategy around DR to focus on these core services that impact the business or that define the business? And how can we build a strategy um, that really incorporates the idea that these services need to be available 100% of the time? And that's not building a whole series of tier four data centers all over the country. It might be to do things. So it's becoming part of the overall data center strategy, this idea of service continuity. And services aren't all your services. They're the ones that hurt. They're the ones, the moment they go down, you start losing money. The moment they go down, there's a risk to life and limb. You know, they're not the back office systems, they're not mail, although I'd argue that mail is pretty darn critical. But they're the ones that really have pain. They're the ones that, the moment they go down, they impact the reputation of the company or the potential loss of customers because the service they need or they want at 2.30 in the morning isn't there. Because that customer will go somewhere else. They're all RTO and workload focused. And in many cases, people are solving the problem through a hybrid approach. They use location and networking options to implement an entirely new strategy. In fact, you're seeing now a number of the co-location vendors starting to get involved in this space. John showed this chart this morning, but let me put a different spin on it. If I have an operation where I'm running some critical services in one region, and I know there's a potential of a disaster or a storm or whatever, which might impact the power grid, might impact my telecom, might impact the physical. If I can move those critical services temporarily somewhere else, um, even in a degraded mode, the service itself is still available. So if that major storm hit and I had a major problem at my primary site, service is still available. Not a bad idea. Co-location providers, a lot of them now, are starting to realize the value of their environment is not necessarily their data center. It's the network between them. It's the ability to link these networks together with realistic and predictable latencies. Pretty much predictable. If I can then offer that to a customer, saying you know, rather than using the public internet or building your own network or using MPLS, maybe you can use my network instead and run services at multiple sites at the same time. Or move services to sites based on potential for corporate risk. So suddenly the way I look at DR 
business continuity, service continuity begins to shift. The first model we've seen of this happened years ago with web services. When web, the web first took take off, the big problem with the web was if something got really popular, those sites got flooded, they went down. I remember Pearly Tires when they used to do their calendar every year. They got hammered once a year and they would come down because of workload. Victoria's Secret had the same problem. Many sites realized, you know what? I need to run these sites three or four different places at the same time. Number one, you get faster access because they're regionalized. Number two, if I do it right, and I do workload balancing, if any site takes a hit, the workloads shift to the other sites automatically. The perception is nothing ever happened. I'm still up as far as my customers are concerned. Yeah, it might be slightly degraded, maybe performance is a bit less, but the perception is still available. And I guess that a term that John and I use this morning. When you do this, last impressions last forever. The last impression is sites up, sites available, I can order a product. So it's a new way of looking at data center strategies long-term based on this. Number three, integrated systems. We've had these for, I don't know, decades. They were edge devices we put in the network, things to do encryption, um, compression, I mean, all kinds of things. Standalone devices, its own OS, its own hardware, its own everything. Um, no maintenance, in theory. And we just stick them out there and they, they run. A number of the vendors have started to realize, you know, as a concept, what if I could sell an integrated system that actually gave you growth, performance, in a standardized package? And I think the first one who really did this that we learned about was Cisco at UCS, and then everybody got involved. We've got you know, dozens of variations on this theme now. It's a packaged environment. It includes you know, servers, operating system, virtualization, storage, networking, all kinds of things. Some, sometimes it's always the same vendor. Sometimes it's a mix and match of whoever they happen to be partnered with at the time. But what's interesting is people are looking at this as a, a different way of, of providing growth inside data centers. Rather than growing it at the component level, device by device over time like we always have, let's buy the stack. Let's grow the stack, maximize its performance within itself, get the next one and get the next one and grow that way. What's really interesting to me is what it's done is change the dynamics of how we buy things. You know, when I was a network geek in my data center, we wanted to get a piece of network equipment. We spent a long time analyzing these vendors, you know, at the, at the knit and the nat level to make sure we got the absolute best product possible. In this environment, you never do that because it would take forever. So the analysis is done higher up the food chain. It's done because of the higher price point. It's done at the vendor level. Do I trust that this vendor can actually deliver this stuff? Like they say, their partnerships are strong, and when I need to grow, they'll be there for me. It's like it. It's best of brand versus best of breed. It's a whole different way of looking at and buying. And what's also interesting is because I spend so much time doing this analysis of multiple different stacks and then standardize on one, six months, eight months down the road when it's time to add to that stack, I'm not going to go through the analysis again. I've already done it. I'll stick with that vendor because I know that vendor. I'm comfortable with them. From a vendor perspective, it's ideal because now I have an environment that I essentially own and I can continue to grow in it. Unless I really mess up totally or the price gets ludicrous, they're going to stay with me because it's comfortable and it makes sense. You know, years ago, there was a saying in data centers, you know, an IBM decision is not a bad decision. Well, it wasn't. And it wasn't a bad decision because it wasn't necessarily the perfect technology but it was good enough, it solved the problem, and from a data center buyer's perspective, it was minimal risk.
this is kind of the same environment. So it competes with general purpose designs, optimized for single purpose in some cases, but the key here is it's best of brand versus best of breed. Now, that vendor may have six vendors inside. Each one of those components may not be best, the best product, but it doesn't matter. It matters that I trust that they can support it for me. They'll be there when I need them. Interesting side comment to this. What this has done is convinced us in data centers that the individual components no longer matter. And if I had come to this audience three, four, five years ago and said, oh, by the way, as a standard offering, you're going to be putting in white box servers for production applications within a few years. I would have gotten a lot of really strange looks. We're all doing it right now. Many customers have realized they buy these integrated systems. Whoever makes the server really doesn't matter. It's a bunch of components pulled from third parties who manages it, who maintains it. That's what matters. But this idea is going to evolve. Right now, this is, this is like a timeline. First one, the pre-evolved systems, this is what we always had. It was take it or leave it. You know, buy the system as it is and go with it, or buy somebody else's. You get what you pay for, upgrade when you outgrow it, or you obsolete it. Now we've got pre-built systems, pre-built um, integration. Compute, network storage, integrated through virtualization and management in most cases. Um, automation and policy provisioning can come with it, doesn't have to. As we move towards the future, it's going to be what we call highly evolved. Very adaptable, frequent and continuous changes, software-driven, software-defined driven. Everything is controlled from the outside uh, at the component level. Intelligence-aware. The idea is, if it becomes more and more automated and easier to control, it becomes easier for us to use, and therefore easier for us to decide to stay with that product set versus something else. And the contrary to this is we call disaggregated systems. This is the idea that Facebook and um, Rackwise, I think, created about four years ago, Open Compute Project. And part of the Open Compute Project was simple. Can we design a hardware environment that's standardized, it interfaces, you know, the basic chassis, say, for a rack, so I can buy components from any ODM out there at the low price point and plug them in as needed. Essentially, build my data center or my compute environment at least expense possible. Uh, and since it's totally standardized, it becomes much easier to maintain, much easier to manage over time. That was the theory. There's a couple of hundred vendors now involved in this project. Um, and they're using things like standardized rack environment. I think Open Compute Rack 1 or 1.1 is, is out now. It kind of looks like a, a normal rack, but not quite. It's a little wider. It's not based on you know, traditional 19-inch rails, which was a telecom standard. Um, it's using things like uh, shared power feeds, kind of like a blade environment, where the rack itself has the power rather than the server. So when I buy a server now that's open compute, I don't buy the power supply. That's an interesting concept. If I want to upgrade a server right now, I've got to buy all these different components that I don't really need. I've already got them, but they come as part of the package, so I buy them. This environment, not so much. Also tied together with silicon photonics in many cases, which essentially is a, is a, 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 a fabric so I can transmit data extremely fast, almost as fast as I can at the board level. So now if, I've, if the whole chassis is based on photonics, and I put in processing over here and memory over here, and perhaps I.O. or NICs over here, they're still going to have the same level of speed I get on a standard system today, integrated system. So now I can start growing this environment much more dynamically, and I buy at the component level rather than the system level. Now, the good news is this sounds cool. 
and lots of folks are interested in it. The bad news is, most of us, if you decide to start buying components from somewhere else, the question is, where do you get them? How do I find a, a supplier from Taiwan or somewhere else? Do they have the, the supply chain to satisfy me at my level you know, with the type of devices? Can I get discounts at the level that a Facebook or somebody else can get? Not, what do I do? You know, how do I solve that problem? And I think I said this morning, I liken it to the software, uh, open software foundations work back, or open software movement back in the 90s. Initially, it was cool stuff. Who's going to manage this? And only the high-end, more aggressive companies really started doing it first. But once a few vendors got involved and decided, yeah, we can package this up for you, we'll manage it for you. It's still open source, but we'll take care of the headaches. Then suddenly we all realized that maybe it's a viable solution. Hard to find a company today that doesn't have open source software doing something, using web-based services. Open source hardware is at the stage software was back in the 90s. So it'll take a while. But it's where we're heading. Bimodal, yeah, bimodal's here. It's not 20% this, 80% this, or 50-50. It's, it's, it's an evolutionary thing. Right now, it's many companies, it's a small piece. I mean, I've, I've got to do these, I've got to do these mobile apps. I blame this on Apple, by the way. And when I do these mobile apps, you know what, if they fail, I need to upgrade them now. Not a week from now, maybe now or two hours from now or a day from now, because my customers expect that. And oh, by the way, when I deliver that app, it's going to be very simple, one function, probably. If I want to add more feature function, I'll either create another app, similar, integrate it with it, or add, tie them together, or I'll add it as a feature moving forward. I'll essentially, iteratively increase the performance of this product over time. But I'll do it very fast, fast releases, you know, no process, no ITIL, because I want to get the stuff out fast. The key is fast. And that's what Apple and the whole App Store phenomena has done for us. We download an app now, we expect it to work. If it doesn't, oh well, trash it, buy another one. Or download another one for free. That's the other problem, is everybody expects it for 99 cents. Different issue. But that driver, people realize, is really the enabler for business customers. Because they want things fast. And if they don't get things fast from IT, they'll find it fast somewhere else. You know, our competition is the outside world now. Our competition is cloud providers. We need to figure out how to adapt to that. So bimodal evolved because companies realize they've got this group here, which is the stars, and the whole world is watching them because they're so fast. And they're asking, how come you can't do that with the rest of the environment? Well, because I'm trying to protect you with the rest of the environment. I've got all these people trained in ITIL. We're good at the process. We get change management, problem management, config management, all these things for a reason. And we can't let you know, the thousand flowers bloom over here affect real production, real. So companies now are organizing so they support both environments. As I say, it's gonna change over time because right now it might be just a few apps being developed on a continuous basis for mobile. But as that market grows, we might see more and more development in that space and perhaps less and less management or maintenance on the lower end because those services might be offloaded to cloud service providers. So it's going to change over time. We just need to be ready for it. So it's not one size fits all. Um, we think digital business, this whole idea of mobile and these fast apps are the next era of IT. Both agile and waterfall methods are used depending on what kind of development you're doing. It's not one or the other, it's both. Which means you can have some people who know how to do things the old way, the stable way, and new people who are just you're dying to break out and do things new ways. The key to Agile and the key to all these things is a 
intellectual concept, which is tough for IT, which is it's okay to mess up. Agile is develop it, watch it fail, learn from that failure, clap your hands, build it again. It's continual improvement based on failure versus the IT, all IT methods, which was slow improvement based on rigorous control. Can't do both. Actually, can't do both with the same app, but we have to do both internal. Okay. Internet of Things. Thousand devices were internet enabled back in 84, 17 billion last year. 50 billion by 2020. It's unbelievable. And I say to myself, so? What's driving this is business, not IT, in most cases. I mean, business have been putting out sensors and wireless uh, mesh networks for years, but to solve specific business problems out of the control of IT, because frankly, IT was running the back office systems and the, the normal stuff. I mean, think about hospitals. For years, hospitals have had uh, tags on, on wheelchairs because they lose them all the time, or they're always in the wrong spot at the wrong time. And now they've got these tags on them, so if it's down on the first floor, it's supposed to be in the sixth floor, I, can, I know exactly where it is and how long it's been there. I can track these things. Simple, simple asset tagging. Now they're doing things like putting sensors on dispensers of um, a cleaner. So when a nurse walks in the room, she cleans her hands, the sensor automatically sees the badge. It's linked through an RFID tag. Now I've got a record of when this person washed their hands. So if anybody tries to start a lawsuit because of an infection, you can say, no, we follow the process, here's the record, they're, they're tracking everything. Well, that data has to go somewhere. You know, and who keeps the data in the world? IT. So we're seeing a lot of more small devices going out there because they're getting more and more inexpensive and really, really tiny. Many of these devices are becoming self-aware, meaning they self-discover networks and they self-create mesh networks around that. They're becoming location aware. And in some cases, batteries are not required, which sounds bizarre, but it's the future we're going towards. Right now, there's a technique called uh, ambient backscatter, where you can actually, small devices can detect wireless or network, uh, wi yeah, wireless signals, and from those, extract enough power to run themselves. So you essentially have these networks, self-powered, running essentially forever. So the interesting thing becomes, what do we do with this data? So it's not a single technology, it's a concept. What's driving the trend are embedded sensors, and they're everywhere now. I've seen sensors in, in tattoos, so they can actually detect the temperature of your skin, detect chemical interactions in the skin, and do a fairly decent diagnostic of what's going on. There's new sensors now you can swallow on a pill. You know, it's pretty amazing. Social impact, real-time support and learning is one of the real drivers around this. If I get, get all this data, I hear all these things, I want to do something about it now. There's a whole series of new business opportunities potentially out there. That's the good news. The scary news is how fast people are adopting these things without thinking about it. I'll give you a personal example. Nest, Nest thermostats, I bought one a couple years ago. They were cool. You know, a guy left Apple, developed these things. It looked like a Mac, but it was a thermostat. Uh, come in a nice white box, you know, typical you know, industrial design. Bought one of these things, paid a ludicrous amount of money for it, put it up. Damn thing worked fine. My wife goes, you know what, this thing is connects to our wireless network and it can track what we're doing and it also can detect other thermostats. So let's get another one. And we ended up getting five of them throughout the house, right? I thought, okay, somebody's very happy. <laughs> I'm spending money on 
that started reporting monthly about our energy spend and started monitoring our, our traffic or whatever. She, my wife claims over the last year, we saved almost 30% in energy just by using these devices. Why? Because they detect where you are in the house, adjust temperature according to your traffic patterns, also detect where you are not in the house, or better yet, when you're not in the house, adjust patterns as well, so they know what's going on. So I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. And then Google bought them. And I went, uh oh. Now Google knows not only everywhere I surf in the world and what I've done for the last, I don't know, 40 years of my life, they also know when I'm home, where I am in the house, when I've had temperatures of what range, thermostats and how, they know essentially everything about my traffic patterns in my house for my whole family. I'm thinking, danger, Will Robinson. You know? <laughs> but that's the world we're all living in. Now, hopefully, we're not here to do evil, but that data has to go somewhere. And the data is not going to be managed and controlled by the business. The data is going to be given IT, and we're going to have to analyze it. So BI, analytics, data warehousing, um, data lakes, all going to be part of this, this puzzle, because the amount of data is going to be potentially massive. All right. Different topic. Researchers have successfully pushed, this is scary, 14 trillion bits per second down a single strand of fiber cable. I think NTT did this last year. And by the way, there's a new wireless protocol out that instantly will double our performance in wireless within the next few years. But what this has done is enable a couple of things. This is a cascade effect as well. In 85, with networking, it enabled personal productivity. I remember it well. The first office we put in place, the whole idea was put a consistent office and all the, all the devices out there, all the desktops, save money, standard license, standard protocols, yada, yada, yada. Individual content, individual filing cabinets, it was personal. Then in 95, we went to knowledge distribution or knowledge management. I remember we had knowledge workers. I used to wonder, do we have non-knowledge workers? I mean, different issue. So we got email attachments, content distribution, computer networks, teams. We started collaborating with teams. It was kind of cool. 2013, social media, mass collaboration, Yelp, whatever. People networks, collectives, location independence. It's amazing how much not only use, but how much we rely on these networks in a day-to-day -day business. But it's all enabled because of network speeds. And it continues to increase. And the demands of our customers continue to push more and more requirements for these things. This is just a map of connectivity over the last few years. Phones, obviously the most. Intelligent phones. Um, tablets, a little bit of growth. Other things, not so much, because they don't require much network right now. Internet of things. But phones and app phone applications are driving a massive amount of traffic. And phone growth in Asia versus the US is out of sight. It's unbelievable. I was just in South Africa, and one of the telcos was telling me that there were regions in South Africa, or regions in Africa, where there were more phones per capita than there were light bulbs. Because everybody had to have a phone. Every family had to have a phone. Next topic. Micro data centers. Like I said, little tiny ones. This, this is actually interesting. This is a, it's an area that's been around forever, and we just haven't really paid attention to it. Think of this. Every retail company out there who's got stores, every pharmacy company, every um, bank, we've, they've all got branch offices. And all these branches, you know, we've done massive consolidation exercises in IT for the last 10 years. You know, 
20 data centers down to two, and we're really good at this stuff. But in every one of those projects, when I've talked to people, one of the side things was, you know, there's a couple of applications we have to leave out of those sites because, frankly, those sites can't go down if we go down. You know, part of our continuity strategy is if the main system is down, they still have some fundamental services they have to maintain. Point of sale systems, inventory systems, uh, you know, security, whatever. So we always left something out there. Usually it was a server or two, and we found it over, over the time, they're under the desk, they're in the back room, they got you know, coffee cups on them, and they're all managed by the junior manager or the assistant manager, partial full-time equivalent non-IT person. Their real job is running the branch, delivering medicine, whatever, but they weren't IT people. And there's this, a movement now in companies realizing that wouldn't it be nice if we can create an environment where we could essentially lock, not lock it down per se, but create an environment where I could standardize on, say, half a rack or a third of a rack, uh, just enough compute capacity, just enough storage capacity, networking, uh, perhaps UPS, you know, some kind of um, availability goals, lock it in a box, put it on a wall, or put it somewhere in the room, and manage it remotely. Now, I could do software distribution, I could do updates, I could do a lot of things that I couldn't do in the past, and I could do it consistently across tens or hundreds or thousands of sites, all from the central location. So suddenly the whole economics begin to shift. Those people are freed up to go back to their real job instead of being partial full-time IT people. Um, I can standardize on the environment, and I have a much more controllable, much more growable environment. Now, I've been talking to large retailers, small retailers, um, um, uh, like CVS, Pharmacy, Walgreens, all the pharmacies out there, doctor's offices, they all have the same problem. I was talking to a railroad last week, another one today, similar problem. Think of this, inside of a, a locomotive. I've got a mini data center, because I've got to track thousands of data points on a, almost on a per second basis in order to meet federal regulations about what, what, tra what traffic is where, where does it attract, can I control it, can I stop it in an emergency situation. All this data has to be collected in some kind of environment how do I do it? So this is a new market, but we think it's going to evolve fairly rapidly because it makes economic sense for companies and it gives them control back of their environments. So self-contained secure environments include storage, processing, networking. I've seen these already that include everything, including monitoring, management, and power and cooling, all self-contained. It really depends on the environment you're looking to put them in. Site-specific applications only. You don't allow them to grow into mini data centers because the local geeks like to play with them. Standardized setup and installation, reduce cost. Centralized control and purchasing, reduce cost. Increase availability, increase reliability. And continuous operations. The key to this whole thing is governance. All right, next. First commercial text message was sent in December of 92. I think my daughter got it. She hasn't responded yet. Have you ever noticed this side comment? When you send, you call, I don't know, anybody in their 20s today, they never answer the phone? I can't figure this out. I called my daughter recently and I get the phone. Hi, this is Al. I'm not here at the moment. If it's urgent, send me a text. I'm thinking, send you a text. It's the same device. <laughs> if not, leave me a voicemail. Leave her a voicemail. What? <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's fabulous. WTF. Um, so I called her, I said, she answered the phone, and finally she sees me, and I says, what the hell, what's going on? And she goes, well, um, 
I, had, I talked to all my friends with text. I says, yeah, I, but I checked the phone bill, and you got like a thousand minutes, and uh, used 18 last month, 18 minutes and 4,500 text messages. I says, what were the 18 minutes used for? She goes, checking voicemail. I thought, okay. <laughs> but I thought, okay, she just got out of college. So that's the culture we're hiring now. And are we rethinking how we look at communicating with partners, employees, potential customers based on all this? I'm not sure we are. Anyways, I digress. Sorry. <laughs> I just think it's fascinating. Daily text message traffic exceeds the population of the planet. It's pretty amazing. The key there was within three minutes it's answered. Nonstop demand. This is what IT has to live with. And this is, a, I could put this chart up five years ago or 10 years ago. Server workloads 10%. This is physical. Network bandwidth going 35% annually. Storage 50% annually. This fifth storage, 50% compounded annual growth rate. Not the devices, the amount of data. That equates to, by the way, 800% in five years. Power costs 20% annually. What's not on here, inside data centers, I.O., it's in like five-fold increase a year. It's unbelievable how fast I.O. is growing because of heavy virtualization, changes in network traffic. And it's also driving what we call continuous demand because today's employees expect everything. 14 billion web pages, 1.3 million app phone. App, I think I downloaded half of them, four devices per user. But that's not the issue. The issue is, the issue is they expect they expect, They're the unwashed masses. We expect access to everything all the time from any device, from anywhere in the world. And it's not a value add, it's a given. So from an IT perspective, we've got to figure out how to deliver that. And by the way, once you deliver that, it's expected. And then you move on, start doing real work. The last one, and potentially the most important one, INO skills. Yeah, there's a skill shift. You know, we're, we're looking for people with a lot more knowledge of, of emerging trends. That, that's not a big thing. Growth and complexity, that is a big thing. We, start, we keep adding more and more things into the data centers, more and more services, and we're adding more and more complexity. It's funny, you know, one of the trends over the last couple of years has been, let's find someone else to do it. I mean, think about it, the cloud trend, the color trend, all these things were about, let's find someone else who's good at this to do it for us. You know, I'm not a facilities manager for data centers. Find somebody else to do it for me. Okay. Offload to them, offload some services to cloud providers. Uh, but I'm still running applications, I'm still supporting my end customers, which means I need to understand how all these pieces tie together. Because when it comes down to a performance problem, somebody's got to solve the problem. Even if it's internal, I've got the same problem. I put a new application online on prem and it runs poorly. What happens? Call the app guys. What are they going to tell me? It's a network problem, man. Nothing wrong with my app. Call the network guys, they're going, it's storage. It's just, it's a hog, man. You, you put it on our IP network and it's killing us. We end up putting a tiger team together of people, what, from each of those stacks, right? The verticals and the highest paid people, each one of those stacks. They get together, they spend time figuring it out and they solve the problem. It's a ludicrous way to solve problems. Incredibly expensive. But we do it on a daily basis almost. We need to figure out ways to get people to start thinking, I call it horizontally. I need somebody to, to look across all these things and say, I know how these pieces tie together. I know the cascade effects. If that has a bad performance problem or that gets oversaturated, it impacts this, which is going to impact that, which will impact this. Logically, tie these things together. That person is incredibly valuable. 
They may not be able to drill down really deep, but they don't have to because you've got people who could do that. So we've got to have two kinds of skills there. One is the horizontal, one is the vertical. Now the question becomes, how do you find this horizontal? You can't just hire somebody on the street and say, you know, get, become a generalist. That'll last a long time. But you might be able to take somebody, one of those stacks, who's getting bored and say, you know what? I want to enable you to start thinking horizontally. You know, tying these pieces together. And by the way, if you do that and you make some bad decisions and fail, it's okay. That's part of the learning curve. It's kind of like the, the DevOps thing. You fail, you learn from that failure, you grow. That becomes good for us. I call this T-shaped people. You know, they get a capital T. The, the drill down is the center post. The cross beam is their horizontalness. It's how they tie things together. The wider that beam, the more valuable they are to the business. And it turns out the more valuable they are to IT as well. So we can enable people to do this and actually keep our most talented people because their motivation is, is knowledge. It's not money, although we think that it is. Money is a short-term motivator. Long-term motivator is knowledge. If we give them a way to learn more, grow themselves, they become more valuable. They also become more marketable. Yes, I got it. So you've got to keep that motivation going. End users are driving IT, no doubt about it. And that will continue. Question becomes, does IT put up the wall and say, no, no, we can't do that, there's no time, we have a list of projects to do? Or does IT say, let's embrace them? What IT generally does instead is say, we've got our own people to figure out this new stuff. We'll have them look at the marketplace, look at you know, consumerization, all these things. Wrong thing to do. Because we're trying to keep the lights on. So let's embrace some of those end users. There's always a couple out there in each group who you know are the, we either call them the pains in the butt or we call them the smart ones we want to hire. Get them involved with research labs or innovation labs or call it what you will, but get them involved essentially educating IT people who tend to look at the world through a, a straw about all these new things that are out there. When you do that, two things happen. Business starts getting more involved with IT day to day. IT people get more involved with business and they start thinking out of their own box, which is really the driver for this whole thing. So all these are little ways you can solve this skills problem without really going out there and trying to hire and find new people. Because at the end of the day, we still require 27, uh, 24, 24 hours a day, seven hours a day, uh, seven days a week support for all our end users, regardless of where they are in the world. That's number one. Um, and we need to do it at the same price point or less than we did last year. So what do we recommend? Other than run screaming out to the bar, I'll be right behind you. Um, Prepare for organizational disruptions. They are going to happen. The question is, if you know they're coming, if you see that train coming at you, you can do something about it ahead of time. If you don't, and say a senior tech person realizes that he, his job might be in danger, who's the most marketable person in that room? They are. They'll go to your competition. Software networks are coming. Begin upgrading skills now. Hybrid services are evolving rapidly. They are continuing to get better. There are point services for specific solutions. Cloud will not solve all problems for all people. In some cases, it makes perfect sense. The IoT Internet of Things, it's going to grow. It's going to grow fast. Business is driving it today. IT needs to get involved just to follow what's going on, understand what's happening, or we're, we won't be left behind. We'll be left blinded by how fast this hits us. And operational complexity will increase. You can reduce it via standards, platforms, and processes but you need to embrace it because it's going to happen no matter what we do. Monday morning, yeah, look at all the projects, all the relationships. One trick I've seen people do with this kind of thing, say, say 
if the real issue is, is organizational stuff and horizontal thinking, you know what, I've got to change management process. It's been in place for years. The DevOps guys don't like it, but I still have to use it for most of my stuff. Before we make a change, we always say, you know, what's the backup process and what's the impact? We never ask, what's the impact two or three levels down the road? So put a cascade process in there and say, okay, before you submit that change, tell me if that fails or if it's oversubscribed or pick a, pick a category, what are the impacts three levels down? And you know, they don't have to do anything about it. You're forcing people to start thinking and understanding how their change impacts multiple other things. You're forcing them to think horizontally. I've seen companies do this, and you know, first there's a lot of griping because, oh, it's a pain to butt, it has more process. What it's doing is forcing education in some cases. And fairly quickly, you'll find an environment where people start thinking not just about what they're doing, but how what they're doing impacts what everybody else is doing. And that's the key. With that, thank you all very much. I appreciate your attention. Thank you.